Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello friends and welcome to another edition of the Bleed Lost Podcast. This week's podcast is brought to you by your good friends at TicketIQ.com. TicketIQ is a website where you can uh, go and, and buy your tickets. So instead of going to the you know the competition, you know the stub hubs of the world, stuff like that, you can go to TicketIQ. Their whole thing is they want to save you money, and saving money is super sick. So if you if if you use TicketIQ with our uh, a link that we have, you will save anywhere from ten to fifteen percent. So if you go to the link in our description for our handles, which are at Bleed Los Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. If you click on that link, it's going to give you a little tree. Click on that guy. It's going to send you to TicketIQ.com. Now, once you go there, you can scroll, look through all the tickets, all that jazz, add them to the box. I'm sorry, add them to the cart, and uh, that's when you'll see your savings. As always, terms and conditions do apply. Please see their website for more detail. Huge thanks to TicketIQ.com for the support. We're also brought to you by our good friends at BleedLos.com. They are a fan apparel company that is all Dodgers, all the time, 24-7, 365, even on Christmas. They have some exclusive Joe Kelly merch. They have some exclusive Julio Diaz merch, things like that. So go check it out, BleedLos.com. For being a loyal listener to this year's podcast, if you use the promo code BleedLosPod, you will save 10% on your purchase from that their website again terms and conditions always apply please see their website for more details huge thanks to bleedlos.com and our podcast is brought to you also by our good friends at foco our day one supporters foco.com if you like bobbleheads like i do if you like random knickknacks like i do hell if you even like hawaiian shirts like i don't i don't like hawaiian shirts but if you like hawaiian shirts if you go to that website at foco.com you can add all that jazz up real quick and just burn through money, right? But we're in the business of saving you money, right? So if you click on the description for this here podcast on whatever brief, uh, or I'm sorry, whatever platform uh, you're using, click on that link. It'll take you to foco.com, add whatever to your cart, and you will save some savings for being a loyal listener to this podcast. Huge thanks to them for the support. As always, terms and conditions do apply. Please see their website for more details. Again, huge thanks to Foco.com for the support. This week, we are joined by the one and only DJ Severe. DJ Severe, if you haven't really heard his story, this is a solid uh, podcast episode to listen to to uh, to get kind of an idea of how, uh, how rad of an individual he is. So without further ado, here is the Bleed Lows Podcast with DJ Severe. Fans, this is Todd Lights, public address announcer for your world champion Los Angeles Dodgers, and you are listening to the Bleed Lows Podcast with your hosts Alonso and Juan, with the baby face gimmick in the sky, Roger. And this week we are joined by uh, the uh, the trifecta, as I'm going to call it, because we've had Todd Lights on, we've had Dita Rule on, now we have DJ Severe on. The uh the DJ himself, DJ Severe. D, uh, Severe, how you doing? Good and yourself. Good to be here. Hope everybody's good. Yeah. yeah. Aside from the the scorching heat wave that we're all enjoying and the Dodgers not doing so great, we are all great. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a double whammy right there. It is. It is. It's disrespectful. This heat is disrespectful, though. I will say that. Yeah. I uh. So so we'll just dive right into it. Uh. I, as I told you, as we came on the air for a long time, I was unaware that the Los Angeles Dodgers of Los Angeles had a DJ. And I was put on to you by, uh, well, we'll give him a shout out by, uh, by the big homie, uh, DJ Juggy of the heavy hitter DJs. Uh, came out of nowhere, but you guys have, as we've talked with, with, with both your uh, colleagues, you guys have a very unique responsibility in the sense of keeping the ambiance going at the stadium. And you guys do a fantastic job, in my humble opinion. You guys are up there with some of the top NBA DJs and in and, and, and production and such. So so kudos to you guys. How hard is that to uh to keep the vibe going even when things are kind of dicey like they are right now? Wow. Okay, so 
thank you for that compliment, by the way, because we uh, we work hard at it, um, all three of us. Um, I do like to say that even when the team's not on, I have to be on. Um, we as a team have to be on. So um, I just try to keep it um, new and fresh. I'm always looking for new music and different things. We have great ownership that allows us to kind of, they say they want it to sound new and not like any other place. So I spend a lot of time weekly trying to find just new different things. Um, I know what makes the sound system work and what works real good out of it. Um, so I try to, um, I'm a big EDM, but more house type vibe. So I try to, I think that's a, a beat that's universal. So I try to keep it just kind of in that range and then not overplay it. I leave Jeter to do most of the um, kind of cult type of pop type things. I try to slide in my different things but not be so um, geared towards trying to speak to someone's name or different things. I just try to keep the ambiance up and keep in mind my crowd, whether what age you are, what color you are, just to try to keep. I think everybody gets together like on a nice 112, 122 BPM kind of like nice bass in the background and just trying to keep it, um, keep the energy up. Keep, I've I become real good at noticing when the energy goes out and kind of noticing how the energy can go out. And um, I just try to not overshoot my shots. Some days you just got to like learn to fight another day because it's just not going to work. But at least keep it fun and have something in my arsenal to carry through a seven or a ten game homestand. Severe, can you talk to me about that relationship that you and Dieter have? Is there, um, is aside from you and Dieter, but is there beef between a musician and a DJ? Is a DJ considered a musician? I mean, how do you, you just mentioned that you let Dieter handle the more cult stuff and you have your own vibe. What is that relationship? And is it normal for DJs to work with musicians like that? Um. You know, I will say that we are. It, it might be normal in some instances. I'm not sure who, how many stadiums still have an organist and a real DJ. I think we're probably the only one that have an organist and someone that's a real DJ. Most other stadiums, I think, just have someone that kind of just plays music. I don't know if they're really considered like DJs. Like, how much outside of the team that they work for do they go out and do parties or look for different music? Um, Peter and I's relationship is very special because we don't we've we've gone grown accustomed to it. And I'm also a musician. I play drums, so it's like I kind of understand music and how it goes. Um, so we work together. We usually talk before a home stand. If he's come up with something, or if I've come up with something, or if a player changes a song and he wants to try to learn um, what it is. So, but we've developed kind of a rhythm. Even though he sits right behind me and we communicate over headset, I kind of know his rhythm, and I know when to when to when he's going to fade out, when I can fade in. So we hardly ever cross each other. Sometimes we do, but it's on purpose because I'm taking I'm going to fade out my track when I hear him come in with what he's going to go, and I kind of know how to go. And then we'll communicate in the game when we get there and look at the script and see if maybe it's best for him. To take a spot here, we might flip it up, um, and we just kind of like develop our own rhythm. It doesn't take a lot every homestand. We kind of, if there's something coming in we want to speak to, or if he feels like he's got a spot, he'll just kind of get in my ear and say, "Hey, let me take this," and we just kind of work together. If I'm digging for a song and looking for something, and something happens, he'll he'll chime in, and vice versa. So when you guys get together and you are hanging out in after clubs, because I know Dieter is a is a rager. Right. I, are you guys like the odd couple? Because after having an interview with Dieter, he is such a soft-spoken, humble right. man. Right. How do you, how do your guys' energy vibe off of each other like that? I think it comes together with the common cause of the game and the energy. Because there's an energy that both me and him have to share. And so we fist bump each other like through the air and we have hand signals and we both look back at each other. And I'm usually the first to figure out what he's playing or why he's playing it. 
because I know like how his brain like operates and what's like coming up. And so I kind of have the same thing too. But yes, we're definitely like two different like beings and two different on two different vibes. <laughs> but we make it work together. And I believe it's both of us are humble and both of us are we have one common goal where we want the energy uh, to be up. And it's not about me shining or him shining because we consider ourselves a team. And no matter what, I'm going to give him his credit. He's going to give me my credit. We've probably done maybe one or two interviews together where we, you know, can really get into, like, the, how the sausage is made on what we do. But um, we'll both just kind of, like, go off each other's ideas. And no one's ideas ever gets, like, Ixnade or Shelf because, like, we're just trying whatever we want to try. And more, more than likely, nine times out of ten, it works. So, um, and then we have 81 games. So it's not like anyone needs any more shine. And actually, the best way I can describe him working for me, it's like he's like a bridge to what I need to do. Because sometimes you need either a little bit of air and organ, and that gives me time to transition to something maybe slower, something like faster. But we kind of like know how to work together. And I'm looking for him to give me those spaces to where I can either where I need to go higher or lower. So I need him to kind of like put a period at the end of what's going on so then I can come in after that. I'm uh, I'm curious to hear your take on it because the way that I came up in the game when, and when I worked in the system, one of the very first clubby things that I had to do was uh, a player gave me a CD. For those of you that don't know what that is, that's called a compact disc and they used to play music on them. Um, and I would, and I took it to the press box and I gave it to, there was no DJ, there was no organist, you know, there was none of that. Right. It was just the announcer and I'd say, Hey, so-and-so wants to hear this song as their walk of music. And that's that you, you, I know you also help out with the, with the walk of music, but it's a little different dynamic now because I know you have relationships with these guys. Right. How, how was that for you as, as you kind of, you know, ventured your way and navigating kind of everything that you're trying to do, but also trying to figure out what it is that these guys wanted to hear as they walked up, because that's, that's a big part of the game that people don't realize is, is an important part to these guys. Right. So that's very interesting how that come about, because when I came in, the DJ was hands off from the players and you only dealt with PR. So I came in and immediately I had given, been given license from ownership to make it sound new. So I knew what I was doing as far as that goes. Um, I changed my pregame mixes up to bring in like a different vibe. And immediately Garrett Anderson that was on the team at the time, he noticed it. And so probably two home stands in my first season, I get a message from PR that Garrett Anderson wants some of my mixes. And so I say, okay. And they ask me how much. And I say, I don't want any money. I just want to take a picture with him. I just want to meet him. So they say, okay. Two days later, they say, well, come down to the dugout at this time. Okay. So then I, I pull up with my CDs. And I'm in the dugout. There's nobody there but me. And then in walks James Loney at the time. So James greets me. I say, what's up? And then Garrett comes in. And we talk about a little bit about um, how they like the vibe at the stadium, how it's different, and how they can tell um, I'm changing up. And all I did was add, like, some 90s hip-hop, some, you know, I didn't really stretch out too far, but just, you know, give it a different, like, a different sound. And so I go back up to my booth in the middle of the game, and PR comes up, and they give me an envelope. And the envelope has 500 bucks in it. And everybody's looking, like, the media's looking, people I'm working with are looking. And they asked, well, what's in the envelope? And I, so I said, well, Garrett Anderson just sent me 500 bucks because I gave him, like, a mix. So two days later, I tell him, I was like, look, I got more mixes for Garrett. I don't want any more money. I just want to give him some more hip-hop, like, related mixes, some different things. So I delivered the, the mixes through PR. Same thing, another envelope, 500 bucks. So now the media is looking, and, and my coworkers are looking, and they're, like, tripped out. So I fast forward. The way that it usually works is PR sends you these emails. And so they got my email address. But the players at the time wanted so much hip-hop. And everything in hip-hop is little this, like big this, or 
like these strange words. So they would always get them wrong. I, I would have to do my own homework and try to figure it out or email them back. Like, are you sure you got this right? Because this doesn't sound right. Or I would have to decipher it for myself. So the next season or the off season, I sent them an email. I said, hey, why don't you let me buy my ticket? I'll come down to Camelback Ranch and I'll talk to the players and get their ideas on music and kind of like tell them what works, what doesn't work um, lyric-wise. So they said, okay. So I go down to uh, Camelback Ranch. I'm there. At first, PR is walking around with me. And then now I finally meet every player that's there. And they see that the players are comfortable with me. And that's a different vibe that's created. And now the media and all the writers are over in the corner. Because when you go in the dugout, uh, down the Camelback Ranch, it's the players. And then this is just this whole horde of just writers just waiting over in the corner looking for a spot to go talk to them. And so when they see that I'm going to each and every player taking pictures, the players are happy to meet me and we're you know, conversing, um, they ask me at the end, they say, well, how come they are so nice to you and they treat us like you know, crap? I said, well, I'm just talking to them about music and they enjoy me like just listening to them about what they're talking about within music. And from that point on, PR saw that um, I wasn't really autograph seeking. I had a good rapport with the players and they allow me to go down every year now. And now it's like if I don't go, the players get pissed off. This was the, like before COVID, I went down and actually DJed a live session for Clayton, a workout session, like five in the morning on a surprise. The trainer hooked it up. And it's if I don't go, PR is just really frustrated because they don't want to deal with the music anymore. And most of the players have, they'll text me directly or they'll DM me directly. Most, but most of them text me directly with their changes and we work it through. And it takes a big headache off from PR. So in this 13-year span, I've managed to get it where I'm one-on-one -on -one with the players. And that also sounds like GA. I, I worked with GA in Anaheim, and uh, that sounds exactly like him. So I'm not surprised that that's what he did. And for our listeners, uh, what uh, Severe just described is what we call washing money. So Garrett, <laughs> Garrett Anderson and Severe were washing money, and it was fantastic. Severe, I, I got to know this. Uh, I don't know anybody that grew up in the Dina. Right. So you tell me, how did you get street cred coming from the Dina? How did you become a DJ? Because you, it, correct me if I'm wrong, you went to Jackie Robinson High. John Muir, right? same, same school as Jackie Robinson. So it's John Muir High School, but uh -huh. Jackie Robinson went there. Yeah. Okay. So let me get this straight. You are the DJ for the Dodgers and you went to a high school that not only Jackie Robinson went to, but is named after Jackie Robinson. Right. And my birthday is Jackie Robinson day. And oh, okay. I'm, and I mean, that, 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 that's, that's crazy. Now that, that, that's just crazy. <laughs> that's and I'm preposterous. In the same of the high school as Jackie Robinson. So I can say I'm in the same hall of fame as Jackie Robinson. So, so, so how did you, how did the, how did you become a DJ? So, Growing up, see all this vinyl here, my dad and my stepdad and my mom were really into music, so I had a lot of music around the house. And this is the days where I came up with like Earth, Wind & Fire, The Whispers, just real good music. And I used to play the drums, or I still play the drums. And I just gravitated to music. I've always loved music, and music has always been a part of me. And I just went from house to house, whether it be my uncles or my aunts, and I was really always enthralled with people's music collections. So as soon as I saw you had vinyl, I gravitated to the vinyl just to see what's in your collection. And shortly after that, this is right when Columbia House came out where you could buy like 12 grand. <laughs> so I was at my How aunt. many CDs did you get for a penny there? <laughs> <laughs> so I just went, I just remember myself just being so like enamored with going through the book and picking like, albums out based off of the album covers and it didn't I didn't care what it was it could be rock it'd be country it could be it, it didn't it didn't matter what it was I just kind of like um looked at the album cover I had an aunt that helped me out too because I used to watch hee-haw I, I, I just knew I, I did everything like it was if it was music I was like into it I because I knew kind of chord progressions and so I like all types of music so I can remember when I started my collection at a young age when this Columbia House came in and I'm discovering music, and I'm reading liner notes, and I just can't wait to open it up. So I spend my summers, you know, listening to music. And then when I came of age, and I would, there was a record shop that was right down the street from my house. And I can remember walking with my dollar, just walking into this brand new record shop. You know, 
there's always a smell of incense and just learning the different records and like what comes out and then just can't wait to get home and then put your record on and then you know and then go into another world so music has always been a part of me and um, I graduated high school and I went into aerospace. I didn't really go into music, so I went into aerospace. And I worked with a buddy who, and this is the time where we were transitioning from vinyl now to CD. So now everything is on CD. So same thing. I couldn't wait till Tuesday and I bought CDs. This is the golden age of music, probably like 92, 93 with, when hip hop was really taking off. So there's so much West Coast hip hop, East Coast hip hop. So you were listening to a lot of Color Me Bad is what you yes, were saying. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So my friend says he's going to throw a party. And I tell him, well, I think I can DJ your party. And I actually did it with two of the little CDJs, the original ones, the CD, the disc, the disc mans, uh-huh. and, and a regular receiver. So I'm in the middle of the hood in L.A., and I'm looking. I'm on this guy's back porch, and I'm crouched down. All I have is my CD tower and these two, like, CD... CD, CD. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Did you know that was going to work? Had you tried it before, or oh, did you just, like... I didn't try it. I hadn't tried it. I just figured I could do it. I just figured I could do it. Uh-huh. You know, that was the task, because it takes a lot of time to get those things to load up. Exactly! Around, to the track that you want to get to. I didn't have headphones. I'm working with a regular stereo receiver, so it's not like I can, I can hear what I'm doing. I just worked it out, and I'm looking, I'm peeking in at this party in the middle of the hood, and people are just in there partying and swimming and sweating, and a couple times, people come out to the back to look for the DJ, and they walk out of the porch, and they see me down there just crouched down, <laughs> like, you're DJing with them? I'm like, yeah, and it's like, the party just like went on, and it was like, I, I, I still don't really realize in amazement like how I did it, but I pulled it off, and it was like seamless. It was seamless, so that was actually my first venture into... Um, DJing and it just carried on. I just collected my music and back in 2001, Aerospace took a dive. I had moved to Arizona. I was going through a divorce. I came back to California and really couldn't get back into aerospace. And I had an uncle, one of my favorite uncles, who asked me, well, What do you want to do? And I said, Well, while aerospace is down, I know I can DJ, but I, like at the time I was down on money. So he wrote me a check for 800 bucks. And I bought, at the time, the first CD DJ controller. And from then, it just took off. I just started saying, okay, well, I just started taking whatever party I could do. I was just practicing because I was horrible at first with the CDs, trying to figure it out. I was better with disc mans than I was with that because that CD controller didn't do what it said it would do. But I just took it, got better over time, better over time, and then that's how I was born. And from that on, I just started DJing. And uh, and I'm just curious because you because you, obviously you you were a traditional DJ quote unquote and then now and, and what I mean by that is you know you're doing parties you know doing events all that stuff and now you're the Los Angeles Dodgers DJ how did that come about? So in it's probably like 2007 eight probably 2009. So remember when the Dodgers were horrible? We weren't winning anything. We weren't sniffing the playoffs or anything. And you remember the big Manny Ramirez trade that brought Manny over. So a couple months before that, I have a buddy who's from Pasadena who sat me down and wanted to get some advice on him taking this job. And everybody knows that Dodger Stadium, there's, a, there's the dugout level all the way to um, top of the park. And so there's a different caterer, uh, Levy, a different caterer manager for Levy on every every uh, level. My buddy had just got the job to be the catering manager for the dugout level, which is the very, very bottom. And he had the idea he wanted to spice it up, bring in a DJ before the game, because normally most of the fans would come there at 5 o'clock, they'd eat real good, and then they'd walk out to their seat. So he wanted to spice it up. So he asked me would I come in and DJ. I said, yeah. So I went in the first series, went in for every game I played. They liked it. Next series, another manager on the reserve level was dealing with a DJ that was becoming like a prima donna. He didn't really want to work with one, one parking spot, so they asked me. They asked my friend for my contact information and asked me could I get two other DJs in there and use one's parking spot. I was like, no problem. So I contacted a couple homeboys I knew were DJs. I told them, look, meet me down the hill. I'm just going to load your equipment up 
on the back of a trailer. And with the one parking spot, we're just going to flip the trailer up on top of my Suburban, and we're good to go. We're going to eat good. You're going to get paid to see the game. It's going to be a good time. So they like, bet. So we did it. And my main thing at the time was just make sure I was there on time, wasn't a headache for Levy, get the job done, everybody eat good, everybody party, and it just carried on. So that following season, they asked me back for opening day. We went through the same thing. And for different special nights, they'd have me come through. Then the Dodgers started hearing about me, and they asked me to do Dodgers Under the Lights. So now I'm working for Levy Catering, and I'm working for Dodgers. I'm doing Dodgers Under the Lights, which is the big, the big kind of fan experience where you can pay money when the team's out of town. You get to play on the field. You get to take the tours. It's this night at Dodger Stadium. So I'm DJing on the dugout, on the visiting dugout. I did that probably five or six times. Then I got the opportunity to do the Dodgers Christmas party. And one year, they decided to do a scavenger hunt. So this is the year where the Dodger horn, the, the DJ horn just first came out. The burr, 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 burr. That was the, the first year that came out. So, of course, every DJ is using it crazy, and I'm using it at this, at this scavenger hunt whenever someone's winning a prize or whatever. So at the end of the, uh, the day, the then-hired producer comes over to me. He says, hey, I really like that sound effect. Could we exchange information? Then you send it to me. I said, no problem. So about two weeks later, I'm on vacation in New York, and he emails me. And so I email him that sound effect and a couple others, and I asked them, are there any openings? And he said, as a matter of fact, we're looking for a DJ. Are you interested? And so I said, well, yeah, because this is always kind of like my goal while I'm there to be the DJ of the team. So I shut down my, my vacation. I start um, taking all my pictures because I've met everybody when I'm DJing in a dugout club. And I started formulating, formulating my, my website to be Dodger-related with everything that I had done. And I come back, I go in for an interview, they send me with all these tasks, but everybody I'm interviewing has recognized me walking around the stadium because I've been around there so much and doing the events. And they give me these scenarios, well, what would you do top of the ninth or bottom of the ninth, we're down, what, what song would you play? And so they sent me home with what was supposed to be this homework. So I go home, I'm running all these scenarios in my head, I'm trying to think what's already played, what I would play, and I come back, Two weeks later for my, what I think is going to be my follow-up interview, I come in, I'm all nervous with all my answers, and I don't even know how many of them I finished. And then they tell me, well, we're just going to give it to you because we've seen you around the stadium. We know you know what the vibe is. We just want somebody that can come in here and create a new vibe and play new music. We don't want to sound like any other stadium, and we think you can do that. And that's how I got the gig. Severe, you know, I, th I think in order to be successful, you you need a little luck. You need to have a good work ethic. Right? And it sounds like you had all of that. Uh, shout out to all the patrons of artists. I mean, the fact that your uncle gave you that money to, to do that, I, th I think is a great story. Um, but tell me the hustle. The hustle is definitely what you need. So when you're starting out, you're no longer aerospace. You're a DJ. How do you get your name out there? I mean, how much time? I, I, I feel like we want everything to, to happen so quickly for us, right? And if we're doing something and we don't get that immediate success, that immediate re recognition, a lot of us give up. Right. But you have to play, you have to be patient and play the long game, right? What did you do to hustle to get your name out there for people to recognize you, your talent, and also give you an opportunity? So, and that's a, that's a great question because I tell people all the time, I, even the DJs that work under me or team with me, I say, look, I would never send you out to do anything that I wouldn't do myself or I was not hungry enough to do. So immediately, I just started letting my friends know I was DJing. I printed up business cards, and I just started offering my services to anybody, free for 50 bucks no matter what, like, you know what I mean? And then just, and then just hone in. I started going to clubs. And watching, not the people, not the females, or not the people <laughs> watch the DJ and what he played and what worked. And I'll never forget, I got an opportunity to DJ a high school dance from a friend of someone I was dating at the time. And 
at the end of this party, this little girl comes up to me. She says, hey, my mom's looking for a DJ. And so I give her my card. And two weeks, two couple days after that, I get a call from someone saying, hey, we're looking for a DJ for this, for this play, this one-man show. Can you meet us in downtown L.A.? And we'll talk about it. So I said, okay. So I go to downtown L.A. And I go inside, and I look inside, and I look up, and Angela Bassett's in the corner. Blair Underwood's here. Larry Fishburne's here. And what it is, it's, is there, it's a preview of plays that are going to come out in this, when the season starts. So it's all these actors, everybody with trench coats and scarves. It's everybody, you know what I mean, all these uh, eclectic people. And so I sit there and I watch them do just one scene from each of these plays. And at the end, this whole crowd walks up to me and says, hey, you're the DJ we heard about. We're interested in you being a DJ in our play. It's called Here Comes the Drums. And so I said, okay, cool. So I get, end up uh, meeting, becoming friends with these people. And they let me design some of the music. And so it ends up being a one-man play that has a guy doing a one-man show. His name is Russell Hornsby, a famous actor now. I'm up in the corner as a DJ and a, a drummer. And I ended up getting nominated for an NAACP award for best oh, sound and for supporting actor. Now, I didn't win, but what that taught me was you never turn down anybody. Because most DJs would be like, I'm not, why, I don't want to, like, I'm not going to give you my card for your mom who needs, like, a DJ. But it learned me to take, to never turn down any opportunity or a gig and always be willing and ready with cards to pass out and be prepared and be ready for every advantage that you get. So to this day, even my manager uh, bugs me because he's like, why do you take all the calls and why do you take and why do you, why do you answer every email? Why do you? I'm like, because you never know what can be uncovered by that one gig. You never know what one gig is going to turn you around, even like my friend. So if my friend would have come to me and I told him, no, I don't take that job, you know what I mean? Then I wouldn't be where I'm at, or him having the, the, the wherewithal to come and ask me for my advice, you know what I mean, and for me to give him my genuine advice. So sometimes you have to look at always the big picture, and, and I'm not saying, you, there's definitely, you're right, there's a lot of strikeouts in there. It's like, I mean, the first wedding I did, I was horrible, you know what I mean? And I could have packed it in, like, from that. And I had some bad things until I got adjusted and figure out that there's so many other, uh, uh, as you keep peeling back the onion, so many different levels to DJing, and you can't just jump out there and say, well, I'm a DJ and I'm going to do it for this. So it's like you have to cut your teeth and learn what works, build your confidence up. Because I, I kid you not, there are some times I was like, I'm horrible. I'm not good at this. i got to shut this down. You know what I mean? And you walk away for a couple of days, and you come back and say, okay, let me give this another try. And then you, then you start learning, and then you got to climb that mountain and keep persevering. And that's exactly what I did. But I never turned down... Any call, I take all interviews seriously. I, I'm never, I'm, I just stay humble. I think that was one of the big things my dad taught me, be humble. Well, two things. Thank you, first of all, for accepting that Bleed Lows podcast email that we sent you to be on the show. And second, for sharing that Larry Fishburne story, because let me tell you, Larry Fishburne in deep cover and King of New York is the truth. So yes. Yes. big, uh, big uh, Larry Fishburne fan over here. Yes, yes, most definitely. We're uh, we're joined by uh, by Los Angeles Dodgers uh, DJ DJ Severe Severe. I'm I'm curious to hear your uh, your opinion on this because we both come from the world of, uh, of of touring to a certain degree, right? And uh, and I know you've done stuff with Bruno Mars. I know you've done stuff with Britney Spears, and uh, you know those obviously there's a lot of pressure there. What what makes you more anxious or nervous or stage frightish or whatever you might call it? Uh, a Dodgers game, big series slash playoff series, or the likes of Bruno Mars or Britney Spears gig? Ooh, that's a great question. So I think they all have their own um, nervousness to them. Because even before a game at Dodgers, sometimes I'm if I have stuff I want to try out and see that it works and I have it play out on my mind, I'm a little anxious and tense, especially when – I know it's like a big series. I'm going to tell you when I was probably the most nervous 
was when Clayton was throwing his no-hitter. And I know Clayton's rhythm. And this is when Clayton was the ace. Like, he Clayton knows when the anthem's supposed to start. He has everything down to a time. And the one thing that I do learn being a Dodgers DJ is I know everyone's walk-up pace. I know when every batter is going to step out of the box. I know when they're ready to get back in the box. I know what they're listening to. I know when Clayton's ready to get back up on the bump and when he's ready to pitch because I watch them so much because I'm looking for these these cues. I'm not just playing music and I'm just like looking around. I'm looking for these cues. And so I know how serious Clayton is because there was a time before when I used to do most of the prompts when Dieter wasn't there and Nancy B was there and management wanted me to do this thump, thump, thump a lot when he was pitching and I could see Clayton shaking his head like like this is getting in my head and so I remember that and so probably the no hitter was probably three years after that so I was so nervous because I just I kind of put all my all my faders down when I wasn't playing music and I just kind of like backed away I was standing like way up against the wall and I'm even watching like Dieter because I don't want anybody to make a mistake while he's pitching this no-hitter, because I know for a fact Clayton, that would throw him off. Clayton knows when everything is supposed to start. So just to get through that, that was probably one of the most tense moments I've had um, DJing for the Dodgers. The gigs with Bruno Mars and uh, everything, I'm more nervous to put on a good show and then read my crowd from them. So there's a different, I won't call it nervous, it's more anticipation to do what I know I can do. And I know I can always bring a good show. It's just, I think I'm more anticipating how I'm going to do it as opposed to if I can do it or not. Severe, so I know you're really involved in the community. You, you've worked with the Dodgers Foundation, with the Wild Horse Foundation, with Mookie's uh, Pull Up Neighbor Foundation. What kind of work do you do with these foundations? I just try to provide whatever it is they need. Like Nicole Whiteman within the Dodgers Foundation is one of the most awesome people um, you want to meet. And I just try to make myself available. When COVID hit and all the DJs were looking around and trying to figure out what they were going to do, and me myself, I knew I wanted to give back. I knew I wanted to be a part. And I knew everybody was kind of shell-shocked. And didn't some people didn't know what to do. Some people tucked themselves in. And so I developed my management team. I talked about what I wanted to do. And just like when the calls came, they said, well, can you be available this many days? I said, yes, because I want to try to give back. And at the time, I didn't know what it was going to be. But when we got there, and I'm just playing music as, as the people that are handing out the food and the necessary items to the families to see their spirits lifted up because at the time we still didn't know what we were really dealing with. Everybody was masked up. You were you did not know. I mean, and just to see them lift their spirits first and then to see the eyes of the kids as they're handing different things out. Um, and the normalcy, the somewhat normalcy that it brought back at the time, that was super super uplifting for me and my crew it actually gave me an outlet because i wasn't stuck at home or stuck in the studio and we would go out and then i i can remember us exhaling at the end of the day like we would be taught like super super tired at the time dodgers weren't playing so i didn't know what was going to happen there but just to bring that to the people and you know we were having racial divides at the same time so just to be out and communicate with people on a common, uh, the common ground of helping people out and then seeing those people's eyes and then just trying to grow from there, that was a real big reward. It fulfilled me and it actually, I think, carried me through um, because I, didn't, I wasn't really concerned with, I was just trying to just be as safe as possible within whatever parameters we had to deal with, but just, I just looked at it as like head down, get the job done, the Dodgers are helping the community, you gotta help the community, Yasiel's helping the community. You got to help the community, help him help. And it just became just this, I felt like at least 
I was doing my part through whatever I was doing, just playing music, making you feel good, helping you get away. It was therapy for me because I, I had an outlet. I learned so many different things. I was able to merge my my black and my brown fans together because I was doing stuff for um, Shop Me Vita. And so I did a Friday night, Fear Me Friday mix. Every Friday, I ended up doing it 56 weeks in a row. And I developed fans that are still fans to this day. Um, we developed just our merchant. It just became just this big camaraderie. And I would have people come up to me and tell me, thank you. Because I started doing mixes and they said, man, I was in a terrible accident. And your mix helped me get through, you know, being bedridden. Or this time, is you, you just uplift us so much. I look forward to seeing you on Friday nights or Sunday mornings because it's helping me get through um, this hard time. So it was very touching to see. And it actually, I think, uh, solidified just the power of music and just reaching out and then helping people and not being afraid to go out and help people or, you know, want to do stuff. I think that's lacking, you know, in America now. We have to help each other. We have to help each other. I want to follow up real quick because you, you mentioned his name and any opportunity I can to, to talk about uh, this guy, I, I'm going to take it. You mentioned Yasiel. Uh, do you, did you know Yasiel pretty well, or did you have a, a, a decent um, uh, relationship with him? I had a pretty good relationship with Yasiel. Okay. I feel that Yasiel got a, the short end of the stick. Uh, yes, maybe he did a lot of things that he should have been held accountable for. But I do feel that a lot of stuff that he did, they really took the whip to him. And I don't see them do that with other players. And I, 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 it just, it, it really, it really uh, sticks with me that, you know, Yasiel did this, they would have crucified him. Somebody else does it, you know, the media doesn't talk about it or anything like that. Your experiences with Puig, I, if anybody who doesn't know his story and everything that he went through just to get here to the States, right. I think we can't lose sight of the fact that this guy wasn't raised in baseball. Okay, right. he didn't have the same opportunities that Mike Trout and all these guys did. What was your experience with Puig? And do you think that Puig got the short end of the stick? Or are we just being, am I just giving him a pass? I'll tell you this. So I was there with Yasiel from the beginning, and I've had several conversations with Yasiel. Great conversations. I've, I've been able to sit back in the corner and watch different things that, He's done. I've been able to be at Camelback Ranch and just watch him enjoying his time with his family. Like when everybody's gone, it's just him out outside playing with his kids. Because normally when I go down there, it's usually like family day. I've, see, I've been able to see him when I come to the locker room and he might show up late and his locker's here and he's the, like the last one there. I've seen him, you know what I mean, late at night out in the parking lot. I've also seen him where right by Elysian Park, right at the park, he pulled over in his Range Rover, and he's just buying fruit from the, few, the person selling the fruit, the fruit and then talking to the fans. Um, it's funny because I've also talked to other players about Yasiel and then the types of things that we did. And, yeah, he crossed a lot of lines, but it's like you said, people don't give him the benefit of doubt from where he came from. He comes over here, you give him, like, all this money, um, he has all this talent. He's a showman. Um, I still believe he's one of the greatest teammates that anyone could have. I feel like, and I kind of knew this was, was going to be kind of like the turning point. When Uribe left, I knew that that was going to be, I knew that he, how in line he kept Yasiel and then how much of a mentor he was to him. And I knew that was going to be, kind of a problem and i would kind of like watch so, so wait uribe was the guy who kept him in yeah. check who, who yeah. looked after him and all that uribe was the uribe was the guy he looked up to when i would whenever i would like i said i'd be off at camera i see uribe always talking to yasiel and uribe was kind of a, a yasiel type player himself he just was older and a little more so he did some of the same things he, 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 he did the, pull the same pranks, always the jokester, always walking in. I've seen him several times, always a good dude. I mean, and just like Yasiel, soft-spoken on some ends too. Like, 
and I kind of knew that that he was the person who kind of kept him like in line. And I know which players had different issues like with him and different things that that happened. Like I said, I've never witnessed anything, but I just kind of like heard different things and seen different things. I'm real big on sitting back and and watching. But I'll tell you this. The one story that I learned about Yasiel through dealing with his foundation was how he takes care of people in his camp. There's a person in his camp right now whose son was very, very sick and was um, like really was close to dying. And Yasiel took over all the medical payments and made sure that this person was taken care of. And when I heard that story, that speaks to me because like a lot of people don't don't know that part of Yasiel. They just see what they think. But Yasiel is a very solid dude and I can't speak to anything, the gods in baseball, how they think, because, you know, this is still the MLB, and it's a major league pastime, and they treat it as such. And every, every organization is going to be doing different. But I know for a fact, Andrew Friedman, he's – I'll give you the example of Tolls, Andrew Tolls. The way they stick with Tolls, and Tolls is another, another person who I could, I could read when I would, I would always try to, like, um, get close with Andrew. I only saw Andrew like upbeat like one time in spring training. Every other time, he was always to himself. But, and I would talk to him and he would say, man, I'm just trying to make the team. I'm just worried about making the team. And I can remember right before he got hurt, he was really, really upbeat because you could tell he had turned the corner and whatever he was dealing with. He's always just one of my favorite people to, to, uh, to talk to. But I feel like in the organization, and I know for a fact in the organization, the Dodgers organization, they give you, especially with Dave Roberts, they're, they're more in tune with their players and help more behind the scenes than you know. The media, they're going to make it whatever they want to make it. They're going to – I learned real quick the difference in some of the media. I can remember one season down at Camelback Ranch, and they see me talking to Matt, and me and Matt were talking for like about a half hour. And so this one reporter comes up to me and he says, well, what were you guys talking about? I said, well, Matt – He's had a change of heart. He's like really focusing on his on his health. He wants to change his music up because to be more uplifting. And the reporter told me straight out, I was like, well, I can't write anything about that. That's not a good story. I was like, well, that's the real story. That's the real story. I'm sorry I can't give you any like dirt, nor would I give you any dirt, because this is my you know, kind of like my friend who we're who we're talking about. But that just goes to show you sometimes they they paint the picture the wrong way or the way that they that they want to train it. But Yasiel's a great dude. Um, I wish him all the luck. Um, I do know his, some of his play is reckless and, like, different. It causes you different things because me, I'm a baseball fan, and you can't – you got to hit the cutoff, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got to hit the cutoff, man. And that sometimes that could be that could be dangerous in the playoffs. If you don't hit the cutoff, man, it costs us a run and we win the game. So I can definitely see both sides. But I know for a fact the organization was 100% behind him. Um, to a certain degree, and I know for a fact certain players um, without, when Uribe left, I think that was kind of like what hurt him, but also the issues with other players, I think kind of like was on them, and you know how that goes, that probably just goes to who got the bigger contract and who can like do it, because I know the core players that are there now, they all liked him and were, and, and were willing to work with him. I've seen him interact with everybody um, on a different level. I've seen him be the spark in the clubhouse. I've seen him be Kike before Kike when Kike was there. I've seen him, like, keep it upbeat. I've seen him interact with Uribe. So, and he's a 100% solid individual with me because from the stories I've heard and the different things, um, just as all our players, I know the Dodgers do real good at, at um, searching out players with integrity and then standing behind them, and we preach that throughout the organization. So I don't think necessarily he got done. I just think some of the circumstances – he did himself like in on some of the things. And then sometimes when you look at the numbers, it just comes down to baseball and, and, and the play and what you do now. And I know he's a fan favorite because you still see the 66 jerseys. And he, if he was to come back on the team today, he'd he get more cheers than any, anybody else. Um, so I just say just stick with him. Um, he's a good cat. He's a solid cat, as most of the Dodgers are.
got a <clears throat> excuse me a few more minutes with uh with DJ Severe. Uh, so I know that uh, with DJs, obviously that you'd mentioned him when we first started the interview. Uh, you you know you li- look for new stuff that you want to listen to, but what are your top favorite records that are go tos for you for Severe for for not even Severe for Lanier the person? What what are your records the, that are go tos? Okay, so my favorite artist of all time is Prince. There's Prince in here. I never would have guessed based on all the Prince records that are <laughs> My favorite all-time artist is Prince. But um, shoot the J. Yeah. Shoot the J. Shoot it. <laughs> um, hip-hop is going to be, even though I grew up in, in Pasadena and, and in L.A. area, I'm a big fan of East Coast hip-hop. So Tribe Called Quest is up there for me. Jay Dilla's up there for me. Um, Donuts. Big is my favorite. My favorite rapper, I consider him the best rapper of all time. Um, Earth, Wind, and Fire is big to me only because of my father's influence. I, had, I ran into Philip Bailey at my barbershop like two weeks ago, and just no one else could recognize that he was Philip Bailey. And so I just went up to him and had a conversation with him about some of his favorite records, like anything Earth, Wind, and Fire, like my favorite song, Earth, Wind, and Fire is In the Stone. Stevie Wonder, I got the opportunity to work with him at KJLH when I was at KJLH, so I still consider him like one of my bosses. Um, anything 90s hip hop, I enjoy. I appreciate West Coast hip hop when it comes to DJ Quick and Cube, a lot of stuff that's out here. I respect, I was, my, my favorite genre, I always have this argument with my manager that um, 90s music, it was the best, the 90s era was the best to me because. You took the R&B and you merged it with the hip-hop and you took the jazz and you merged it with the hip-hop. So you have such a vast... It brought everything together because the records I grew up listening to, to my, with my dad, the jazz albums, when they were able to take them and put them on good hip-hop, it kind of gave me an end because now I know what that sample is and I know what they're, what they're using, as well as paying homage to it and it keeping it alive. I think that was like the best era... In hip hop, aside from the made up East Coast West Coast beef, which is total nonsense, um, but everything else about that. But Prince is my number one go to. But I love anything. Like I have a Quincy Jones poster back there, where it's like I'm a big fan of Quincy Jones. And I look at those stories because just like we're talking about my story, I like to watch these documentaries on music to see where people come from, and again, who put whatever instrument in their hand or what what triggered them to get into music. I'm really disappointed in the school system nowadays when they get rid of the arts and different things for people to do because not everybody's going to be a doctor or a lawyer. You still need people that are artists. You still need mechanics. You still need people to learn a trade. And I think that's where we're forgetting the students and give them some another opportunity to release what's inside them because there's tons of artists out there. There's some great stuff out there now. They just don't have the, the guidance to like get it out. So now it's like they have to even work harder to get it out. You know? But definitely Prince, Notorious Big, Tribe Call Quest, Outcast, Jay Dilla, I'm a huge Jay Dilla fan. And that's usually like my go to's. My go to's when I want to feel good. What's uh and by the way, uh solid pickup on the uh, the hip hop and the jazz influence, like like as the, this is probably gonna be the the nerdiest music segment we ever do on this podcast. Uh, cool and Dre, the producers Cool and Dre, yes, yes, I've yes. always I've always loved their sample work because they do stuff like from the Tramps and all that old school stuff, right? And uh, and it's stuff that you know even at the time, like that was what two thousand five ish something like that when that when they did that stuff, like and you know that's when I you know was coming out of high school going into college or whatever kids my age didn't really know about the tramps they didn't know you know even really about earth wind and fire and that's kind of when i was you know exposed to the to the the, the outcasts the the tribe called quests you know the you know all that sort of stuff right and then now you know we, you know obviously everything evolves but it all comes back down to kind of the roots and prince is obviously a big influence on hip-hop and whatnot so i'm curious what's your favorite prince song it varies sometimes it's uh lady cab driver and some days it's if I was your girlfriend, so it rotates like periodically. 
I was a real big fan. I'm real. I'm a real big before Purple Rain Prince fan. So like early on Prince is where I'm. That's my wheelhouse. I discovered him at Dirty Mind, and I went back to his first two albums, and that's when I realized how much of a musical genius he was. So I'm really into those that genre, the early Prince. Up until 1999, even Controversy, I love the Controversy album. But if I had to say it, it's probably Lady Cab Driver is probably my favorite Prince song. That's a solid pick, solid abstract pick. I still think I, I'm I'm a little red Corvette guy, as, as yeah, soft as yeah, that is. But that yeah. song slaps. Yeah, definitely a slapper. I got people don't even realize that that's a slapper. You put it on, yeah. People, people consider that a slow song, but it's not really a slow song. That's definitely a slapper. Oh yeah, like when you throw it on, you know, oh this is slow, and then all of a sudden people are just break dancing out of nowhere. <laughs> That goes, yeah. The Lindrum goes, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Actually, uh, so Lindrum. I went back to. I went to Paisley Park two years ago, so I actually saw that actual drum machine at Paisley Park. Oh, I would have tried. It would have taken every ounce of my being to not <laughs> steal that drum machine. Yeah. I just would have. Yo, I'm. I'm out. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm taking it. I saw that actual drum machine, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, Severe, we usually end every show uh, to determine whether you're going to get a permanent invite to the carne asada. But before that, I have one more question for you. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw you once on Fox 11 with Liz Habib and you were doing some post-game commentary on the Dodge. I think it might have been last year, right? What was that experience like? Is that something you would like to continue to do? That was crazy because I did not know I was going to get a chance to do give my analyzation of the game. And so the whole time... It's funny because someone was just asking me this yesterday. Like, it was surreal. They were like, well, how was that for you? The Dodgers were out of town, and you couldn't really the, – the World Series was going on. You couldn't really be a part of it. How would that make you feel? I said, well, it was very surreal because, yes, the team was away, but I got to do so many other things that I normally wouldn't do if they were here. And so I did a, a segment with them a couple games before that, and it was just me and Liz, and I forgot who else it was. But then this time – so now I'm doing the championship game, and Steve Garvey's there, who's one of my all-time favorite players and people. And I'm like, I'm, I'm asking myself, am I going to get the opportunity to analyze this game? So I'm really into it, and I love playoff baseball. There's nothing like playoff baseball to me. Even if the Dodgers are in it, I'm watching every game because I love playoff baseball. But just to be able to sit there and talk, give my impression of the game with Steve Garvey that was like one of my ultimate things. I'm glad you asked me that because I was, I didn't, I never really told anybody that. It's like I was, that was very surreal for me to be talking baseball as the DJ with Steve Garvey and Liz Habib after the game was over. That was crazy. You're, you're, you're a renaissance man. Yeah. And you're, you're a renaissance man. Okay. So here we go. No, no pressure. Go ahead. No pressure, but this is how we determine your invite to, to the carne asada. Before I get there, though, this is a new segment that I am debuting here only because we brought up Prince. So these and you also brought up when, uh, Stevie Wonder. So you're, you're a musical genius. So I need your opinion on this. A tequila shot means you like it. A, gla- a shot of water means you're, you're OK on it. Stevie wonders. I just called to say, I love you. Is that a tequila shot or a shot of water? That's water. Oh, wow. Wow. That, that hurts. Oh. I, I get it. I get it. That Stevie wonder, but that's just one of those songs that I don't know. For some reason, I really like, okay. Prince erotic city, a tequila shot or a glass of water. That's tequila shot. That's tequila shot. That's tequila. All right. That's my favorite Prince song. All right. Can I say that's unfair though? Because he's a little biased. They don't, hey, he look. There's Prince people that don't like Erotic City. That's a fair point, but he, but regardless, he just he just hyped up Prince. Don't and disrespect the, now, go, son. I'm just don't disrespect the guests like this, Alonzo. <laughs> don't disrespect the guests. He said tequila shot. To if anyone's City. disrespecting the guests, I feel like it's you, Juan. <laughs> <laughs> You're gaslighting our guests now. We can't do this. All right, Sevier. Here's here's the real. It has to be Casamigos. It has to be Casamigos. Okay. Very specific. Very spe- I, I, I appreciate that, though. So here it is, the question. Being that you're from Pasadena, you're, you're, a, you're a SoCal native. What is your favorite taco? What is your go-to taco? When you are leaving the stadium, you're hungry, you got to have a taco. What do you get and where do you go? Okay. So because I'm from Pasadena and 
I usually go to for my tacos and all my authentic Mexican food. I go to Mahares in Pasadena. That's where I go. And what do you get? I get <laughs> uh, lobster enchiladas when I go. Wow. wow. Curveball. And yeah. another curveball, by the way, by one of the three of you in the booth, because Dieter threw the curveball at us by being the first vegetarian on the show. Yes. Yeah. Dieter's a serious vegetarian. Serious. I don't think we've ever gotten lobster enchilada as, no. as an option. I mean, I wish I had the breaking news button so I could play breaking news, but that's the first, uh, that's the first lobster enchilada I've heard in a minute. So you're really like taking down lobster enchiladas at three o'clock in the morning. You can yeah. handle that. And, but I will say this, my favorite taco right now is from, Spot is that? What spot did we go to? Uh, yes, what's the, the spot out here? Yeah, the Masalena, the Masalena. Yeah, delicious. Where's that at? We're out here in Ontario. My studio's in Ontario, uh-huh. and, and I'm a tacos gavilan. I like I I pull off the tin and get those like <laughs> okay. Right. If I don't stop with my hearts, I'll, I'll go to gavilan and I'll get I, I'll get chicken. I get a chicken taco. So yeah. And what and what taco do you get at uh at that spot there in Ontario? That one we get the same the carne asada, but I'm the one thing with me is I always add cheese, so that's my thing. I'm adding. Wait, wait, wait! What kind of cheese? Mozzarella. Is it mozzarella? No, it's not mozzarella. Like queso fresco. Monterey Jack. It's Monterey Jack. Oh, Monterey Jack. Yeah, but I'm always adding cheese. I I have to add cheese. I have to add cheese. Many wow. curveballs. I, yeah, I never would have taken you for a junk ball pitcher, Severe. I mean, you've thrown a lot of off-speed stuff at me. Yeah. Lobster enchiladas, and then you're putting cheese on, on, on tacos? I mean, you really are a renaissance man. Cheese. I have to have cheese. I have to have cheese. You knuckleballed us out of nowhere. <laughs> so let me ask you real quick before we end. If you have to have cheese, when Chase Utley was on the team, did you guys have beef because you weren't dairy-free? No, you know, and actually, Chase... Chase, me and Chase, like, Chase was one of the nicest people in the world. Like, you know, Chase always has that style. But Chase, Chase, I can remember a real quick story. So one day, once I usually go down on Sundays, and I, I hang it. That's when I go check in with the players, make sure everything is good. And Chase and Aegon are in the, at the locker rooms. Their locker rooms were together at the same time. And they never pulled me. Like, Chase will see me or give me a fist bump. But they have never called me over during a game, like during, like in the beginning of the game. So they call me over. Aegon sitting down, Chase sitting down, and they they got these grins on their face. And I'm like, okay, so they look, look. Joe West is the umpire today. So what we want you to do is, we want you to play Joe West country album for everyone's <laughs> walk up in the beginning of the, every batter down the line. And then Aegon's looking at me and Chase looking at me. At this time, these are the two captains of the team. Yeah. Going, what? They're like, yeah. And so I'm like, so immediately I just go back upstairs. And I'm like, okay, first I got got to find this album. I got to load this up. And I can't tell anybody about this because just Adrian and Chase just told me. So it's not like I can veto it. I can't go to PR. Like, is this? So I just have to do it. So I'm like nervous. That's another nervous. I'm like nervous the whole time. So and Joe West is behind the plate. So I'm so I'm like I get all the music. I t- kind of tell my bosses a little bit, and I tell um, Todd the announcer so nobody's throwing off. So I go okay. So first first batter comes up. I'm playing Joe West music. He kind of looks around, like laughs a little bit, and then nothing happens. Next batter, another Joe West song. So then he looks at the dugout, and they they're kind of like doing this. You know, but kind of like like laughing. <laughs> then batter up another Joe West song. So then he like stops. He turns around and he's looking up like where like Vin would have been at the time. He still can't figure it out. And then now, so now all the media is looking over at me. So we're trying to figure it out. And my mind, I'm trying to think, how am I gonna get through nine batters and all these songs, and Joe not get pissed off because you you know Joe West, you you never know what mood he's gonna be in. And so another batter comes up. And I believe we either clear the bases with a home run or something works where we get enough runs in. So 
<laughs> it lightens the load a little bit. Now we come back around next inning. Same thing. Joe West music. He's still sitting there. He's just putting his hands on his head, and he could look on. And now finally, the team is at least starting to laugh, so it's taking some of the pressure off. And the media is still trying to figure it out because they're writing about it. But it actually got over good because I only had to use it like seven, eight times, and I was able to get out of it. But that was very, like, I was a very nervous moment for me because I got these two leaders of the, <laughs> these two leaders of the team that just came, pulled me, told me what to do, and I couldn't tell anybody I was doing it. And that, that, that was this very nervous time for me. But that's one of my favorite stories. Would they have been able to throw him out of the game for that? To throw him out of the stadium? They, 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 they probably, probably, probably could have. I've seen them do that. They probably could have. Like, really? remember, remember that minor league uh, PA yeah. that played three blind mice? They, they threw yeah, that they dude out. And they threw him out. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. Still oh. one of the best videos ever. But that would have been crazy if Joe West threw me out for playing his music, like, you know, like you know. I'm sure if that happened, Garrett Anderson would have sent you an envelope oh, yeah. with eleven hundred dollars in it. <laughs> He would have paid your fine and then probably, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't see, I, I, that sounds like GA. <laughs> on that note, though, uh, Severe, uh, tell, uh, tell the folks where they can find you on the, on the interwebs. On the interwebs, you can find me at the real DJ Severe on IG and DJ Severe on Twitter. And that's my favorite place to be. I'm very interactive on my Twitter in the game with different things and different questions. So that's the best place to find me. He's a, he's a good follow. I follow him on Instagram. Uh, solid follow. Check it out. Uh, thank you for joining us, Severe. We, uh, next time you join us, we'll bring a, 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 a brick of Monterey Jack so yeah. we're prepared. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and we'll just, we'll just, we'll just keep the Stevie Wonder music out of the, uh, out of the goodness <laughs> out of them. Thanks for joining us, though, man. We really appreciate it, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you at a game, yeah? Pleasure, yes. Go Dodgers. And there you have it, DJ Severe. Thanks again, man. Huge thanks to Severe for joining us. If you haven't, please uh, subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on the Instagram or the Twitter at Bleedlos Podcast. Again, please go follow Severe. He's a great follow on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, he's just a stand-up dude. Couldn't have been nicer. So uh, super stoked to, uh, to catch him down the road at the stadium. But until then, go Dodgers, stay safe, and we will catch you down the road. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review to the Bleed Lows Podcast. The Bleed Lows Podcast is a Dodgers Beat production. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.